arguing about the best books of the year on Scribble. Welcome to Scribble, 30 minutes of conversation, comments, and reviews on reading and writing, editing, publishing, and selling books. I'm Rebecca Wee. And I'm Don Wooten. Let's get into this new year talking about books from the past (laughs) on Scribble. disorganizement, throwing things all around the studio. (laughs) Yes, and I was chuckling at your sort of lead-in description of this, because we're not going to argue about them, are we? We're going to just talk about the books that, or are we going to have a fight? Well, (laughs) if we're going to have a fight, I am (laughs) ill-equipped. No, I liked it. Because with a with no balance, all it takes uh, is a little push to the chest and I'm done. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was thinking about, you know, how, yeah, the the new year comes and you're sort of looking back at what you either read or wished you had read or or gathered to read and didn't get to. And I, I was thinking of that word, the Japanese word, the um, I think you pronounce it sundoku, which is basically... The definition I love best is the art of buying books and not reading them. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, you know it's. Yeah, I've I've been. Uh, that takes the <laughs> takes the beginning from tsunami. Yeah. And you know yep. you have a flood of books, and and my house yep. is flooded with books. Oh, and things that that you're dying to read, but you know, get replaced by something else that comes along. That's so true. You, you know, And you pick up a book, you think, I've got to read this book, but oh my goodness, is it thick. <laughs> well, or you've got, are you one who reads several books at the same time? Oh, that can't do that. Oh, I've got friends who can do that. I can't either. I need to just be focused on the one thing of the moment, but have friends who can just go in and out. Faye Clow was a great reader of that sort. Yeah. We talked about that, and I said, how do you do that? Yeah, how do you But she just was able to shift from one book to another and keep going back. Yeah. No, I I can't do that. But, uh, you know, and it is presumptuous to think that we can tell you what the best books of the year are. Exactly. We haven't read them. How how can (laughs) we know? (laughs) But uh, I'll tell you one. I went through some best book lists, and one book that showed up on every one was An Immense World by Ed Yong. Yeah, yeah. Ed Yong had, has written a, a prior book called I Contain Multitudes. Yeah. And I have talked about this before. I've written a column about the subject, about the fact that we are inhabited by all these trillions of things mm-hmm. which shape our thinking our appetites, and so on. And an immense world, it's just uh, the subtitle, A Grand Tour Through the Hidden Realms of Animal Senses that will transform the way you perceive the world. Mm -hmm. And what he does is talk about 
I suppose you'd have to say it's the way the brain works in all creatures. That there are degrees of awareness, consciousness, and so on, all through the animal kingdom. Yeah. Even down to insects. Sure. And the things that those nosy scientists are discovering that uh, you don't you think this is not possible. Yeah, yeah. But uh, he, he talks about all things. That the eyes of a giant squid evolved to see sparkling whales. Mm-hmm. That plants thrum with the inaudible songs of courting bugs. We learn what bees see in flowers, what songbirds hear in their tunes, and what dogs smell on the street. Yeah. He takes you, you know, the thing is, we we know, we've learned that all creatures communicate. And apparently they communicate. I, I used to think it was, uh, I forget who it was, did the, a wonderful television series. He talked about all creatures talk in complete sentences. Mm. But when you have people, the words drop out of sentences and we can use them any way we want. Oh, that's interesting. I yeah, I thought that was a, uh, an interesting way of putting it. But it turns out there's great variety in communication among all creatures. Trees communicate yeah, yep. with each other and yep. with insects. And the way they do it... <clears throat> There are means of communication which are closed to us. Yes, exactly. Magnetism, uh, electricity, all sorts of things. Yep. The whole world is abuzz with communication. Yeah. And we only hear what little, we little have bit to say. <laughs> yep. And then we make the error, at least too many of us, of sort of anthropomorphizing, you know, putting human characteristics <clears throat> onto the onto the critters and you think no they've they've got their own thing and yeah. we're outside of that you know they do but uh, an immense world by ed young and his prior book i contain multitudes talks about all the things that are in your body there were a number of books on that as a matter of fact i think i talked earlier about uh, metazoa which tries to get into the way that that minds have developed over time. And uh, that is a great book by Peter Godfrey Smith, Metazoa, Animal Life and the Birth of the Mind. Mm. There's so much going on in terms of communication. You have no idea. Try reading one of those books. Metazoa is out probably in a soft cover, but An Immense World by Ed Yong is the latest and that follows his I Contain Multitudes. Okay. Y-O-N-G, Ed Yong. You really ought to look at that book. Excellent. So the Metazoa isn't his. That's a different one. No, that's by Peter Godfrey Smith. Okay. But that is that surveys the whole, the whole scene. Hmm. And uh, the, there are books like that that do that, uh, that take a, a global view of things. And uh, the great one, Sapiens, by Harari, is uh, I would not I would not go to go to bat for everything in the book, but in, in general, he he does this masterful job of yeah. explaining how life came from nothing, apparently nothing, into the incredible diversity it is now. 
Well, of course, I'm stuck on nonfiction, but I, I think those books read with the excitement of a great work of fiction. Well, and even just the little bits you were reading, um, it's poetry. You know, I'm, I'm thinking I hear poetry in it, which is really cool. Oh, yeah, he is a very, very good writer. But yeah. you've been reading books too, huh? I've been making lists of books I want to read or already have on my shelves. So I have some of those, but yes, I've been reading um, the the poetry book I was most interested in reading, and, and it takes me a while to make my way through poetry books because I just have to savor them one at a time. Um, our current poet laureate, Ada Limon, um, she's the 24th United States Poet Laureate, and her most recent book is called The Hurting Kind, and the poems are <clears throat> exactly what you were just talking about. There's an I, I make notes when I'm going through it. Almost every page, I've got animals and plants, um, <clears throat> colors, weather, plants, animals, um, and there's always this human voice talking, but it's like there's no story, there's no poem, there's nothing without the world around it. And, um, yeah, they're just wonderful. You know, the titles even have the, – the title is The Hurting Kind, and one of the things that also recurs in the poems is the speaker or speakers of the poems are are transformed not always in good ways by – you know what they're seeing, what what's going on around them in the animal world, in the weather world. Um, so there's a lot of pain, actually. There's a lot of mention of weeping and crying, but it's so beautiful. Um, she got the Guardian had quoted her just saying she's a poet of ecstatic revelation, and yeah, that's a good way good way to describe it. Um, I was trying to think. Here's here's. I'll just read a couple little short ones to give you a taste of it. Um, <clears throat> she's organized these poems into four sections in the book, starting with spring, and they're spring poems. Um, they're not about the spring, but you can kind of figure out what she's doing and how she's organized it. Then there's summer, fall, and winter. Um, but here's – it's a prose poem. It's called Forsythia. Um at the cabin in Snug Hollow near McSwain Branch Creek. Just spring, all the animals are out, and my beloved and I are lying in bed in a soft silence. We are talking about how we carry so many people with us, wherever we go, how even when simply living, these unearned moments are a tribute to the dead. We are both expecting to hear an owl as the night deepens. All afternoon from the porch, we watched an eastern towhee furiously build her nest in the untamed forsythia with its yellow spilling out into the horizon. I told him that the way I remember the name forsythia is that when my stepmother, Cynthia, was dying that last week, she said lucidly but mysteriously, more yellow. And I thought, yes, more yellow, and nodded because I agreed, of course, more yellow. And so now in my head, when I see that yellow tangle, I say, for Cynthia, for Cynthia, for Cynthia, for Cynthia, more yellow. 
It is night now, and the owl never comes, only more of night and what repeats in the night. That's very nice. Isn't it interesting? So uh, it, You know, when you find something, Forsythia, Forsynthia. Yeah. I mean, the way you can mess with language. The playing with the sound, the associations with, you know, a, a stepmother who's dying, but but having this moment of more yellow, more yellow. And all of a sudden, all the little parts come together. And she does that over and over and over again. Um and she's very... It's interesting, those <clears throat> moments of lucidity near the end. Yeah, yep. I know uh, when Bernadette was dying, uh, Chris and I went over in the mid middle of a blizzard to visit where she was at uh, a hospice, what turned out to be a hospice. And uh, all of a sudden, the conversation was bright and lucid and so yeah. on. Yeah. Yep. And, and I thought, this is good, but this is bad. Yep, you know and, that something's shifting. Yep. Yeah, that's true. Yep. But uh, that's they, scientists find out that at that moment, and particularly at, at the moment of death, all the blood rushes to your brain. Hmm. It's just as if, look out. Yeah. And uh, that's why people who had near-death experiences tell you about the same thing. Yeah, you the know, things that... Come. Yeah, they suddenly yep. see themselves from above. They they meet someone from the past yep. talking about their life. And then uh, in their case, they come right back. But if you die, then it all then goes it's away. Gone. But yeah, that idea that your life flashes before you and who knows what the what the details are going to be that you recall or that yeah, come it, to you. It's the right brain cut loose and it does mm -hmm. its job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the hurting kind. The hurting kind. Um, What's her name again? Ada Limon. She grew up in California, um, but she's our current U.S. Poet Laureate. L-I-M-O-N, huh? Yep, yep. Okay. Well, here's a book that's new, and uh, I was intrigued by a review that I read, I think it might have been the New York Times. What do you call an anti-tax ideologue who spreads false accounts of rape and child murder via the mass media with the explicit goal of bringing down legitimately constituted government? If the man is Samuel Adams, you call him a founder. <laughs> Apparently, Sam Adams <laughs> did everything he could to get rid of uh, the king and that kind of authority and set up a democracy. Uh, Stacy Schiff celebrates a man she says was wired, who wired a continent for rebellion. And there really is a lot. He was a rabble rouser. He used everything he could to bring down the, the uh, royal government. But as she says, he was utterly incorruptible. Colonial authorities tried to buy him off with public office, but he could be neither bribed nor intimidated. He cared nothing for personal gain, and huh. in his own words gloried in being what the world calls a poor man. He was idealistic. He was had great equanimity. He was able to ride through everything, and he was a gifted orator. Um, and all of the people <clears throat> in that tumultuous period credit him with bringing it off. 
Wow. That without Samuel Adams, we might never have become a democracy. Oh, think of the power in those gifts that you just listed there, you know, and the fact that he could sell it, you know, and talk about it, that he was gifted in speech. Well, you know, he left no papers, really. Hmm. And uh, Schiff had to look at what other people said about him. The loyalist Massachusetts Governor Thomas Hutchinson doubted that there was in the English-speaking world a man of greater malignity of heart or one who less scruples any measures ever so criminal to accomplish his purposes. But uh, his, he was described by uh, his uh, younger second cousin, John Adams, as a man of refined policy, steadfast integrity, exquisite humanity, genteel erudition, obliging, engaging manners, real as well as professed piety, and a universal good character. But every incident that led wow. to the revolution, he had a hand. <laughs> and what a great phrase you just used, malignant, malignity, is that what it was? Yeah, malignity yeah. of heart. You yeah. know, you don't think that's coming in a phrase that starts with that. What a, but what what's a interesting cool is that we look at the... Uh, the elite people, as the found Washington, Jefferson, mm -hmm. yep. so on. And it wasn't until the 100th anniversary of the Revolution that somebody bothered to put up a statue of John Adams. How interesting. Yeah, because he was a scrappy guy, and he, like a terrier, he would not let go. Huh. Now, the problem with that is that there are people around this country who want to start a revolution, mm -hmm. but they are not people of the great depth of character, yep, and what exactly. they want to bring down is a democracy yep. and instead yep. institute an author authoritarian government. Mm -hmm. So uh, John Adams is a model of two different kinds. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. But he, you know, never did anything for the country that, that earned him money. Uh -huh. Not at all. So I'll talk about somebody else who's just the opposite of <laughs> another book. <laughs> Who could that be? What else? Um, uh, what other books have <clears throat> interested you? Well, one that I kept finding on book lists because I was looking at NPR's. I think NPR puts out like a list of 400 from oh, the year, dear, you know. Dear. And But I also looked at – I just like Talk of Iowa and the um, Prairie Lights. People know their books. Um, and one that I kept seeing – was called The Swimmers. Did you come across that? The Swimmers by Julie Otska. And she was the writer of um, When the Emperor Was Divine, which we used as an Augie first-year book because in that case she was writing about um, a family, a Japanese family sent to the internment camps. Um, but she invents them, and the that book is told through their different voices, apparently. So I haven't read The Swimmers yet. But what all the reviewers were commenting on was this really spare, crystalline style that she has, which she had in The Emperor Was Divine. But The Swimmers is basically, um, it, it's described as being this sort of brilliant book about routines, about the importance of routines, and I'm somebody who doesn't 
I just don't have routines. I never have, really. I that. <laughs> just, I've tried, and they just don't work. So I don't, you know, I don't have routines. But I value them, and I see what what their use is. Anyway, this book, I guess, it's just a novel, and it's described as being very small, sort of spare. But it says... Um, the Swimmers is a group of people who gather to swim laps at a university pool, um, and they become friends. I don't know how many there are in the group, but one day a crack appears in the bottom of the pool, and the pool gets closed down because something's wrong by the drain. And apparently it follows some of these people um, who don't know what to do with themselves without that routine, without each other, without the exercise, without knowing that every day they're going to go do that. Um, so I just thought it was, it sounded very simple and very complex at the same time. And because I love Otska's writing, um, that's one on my list, but it showed up everywhere I went called The Swimmers. Well, you know, there have been so many books written about Donald Trump, <laughs> pro and con. <laughs> I mean, people, uh, he he has had an amazing impact on this country. Yep. And uh, the latest is Confidence Man, hmm. The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America by Maggie Haberman. Maggie Haberman has been a reporter for one of the tabloids, first of all, in New York, where Donald Trump first made his appearances, yeah. tried to break out. And then later on for the New York Times, she has written about him for all these years, about 40-some years, yeah. and has followed his career. And at times he has praised her, at times he has damned her. I think I've, yeah. I think, yeah and, uh -huh. But the thing is, she has written the ultimate book, Confidence Man. The Confidence Man is because he has unbreakable self-confidence. He really believes he's the greatest guy yeah. who's ever lived. But he's also a con artist yep. and a confidence man. Yep. And the combination of the two is puzzling for most people. Yeah, People take one or the other. But her book is so good because she talks about, particularly in the early days, what there was about this man that drew people to him. Yeah, That caused people to just absolutely base their lives on him. Yeah, no matter what he was doing. Right. Mm -hmm. And how that problem that turned out to be a problem because once he got to be president, he didn't know what he was doing Yeah. and didn't much care. Yeah, yep. And it's always about himself and money. Yeah. But the interesting thing is he kept talking to Haberman. Yeah, yep. I remember an interview where she was talking about that and yeah. saying she knew she had access to him. He said, I love being with her. She's like my psychiatrist. <laughs> and uh, she says the reality is that he treats everyone like they are his psychiatrist. <laughs> At present, all present a chance for him to vent or uh -huh. test reactions or gauge how his statements are playing or discover how he is feeling. A really complex guy, and this is a thorough book. I'm halfway through it, and I know almost everything that I've read thus far because I've followed him closely since 1980. I bet he doesn't actually have a therapist. You know, he would oh, be no. the kind who would, I don't need a therapist. No, I don't I need, know. I don't know. Oh, no. He, <laughs> he actually believes he 
spontaneously knows everything. I know, I know. It's incredible. Isn't but it? anyway, Confidence Man, if you want to read a book about Donald Trump that is about as balanced as one can get, yeah. Maggie Haberman's is the one. Yep. And that, so yeah, she's not judging. She's just re- just reporting. Yep, that's yep. it. Yep. But uh, anyway, uh, what other books have interested you? Um, I'll talk about one because Juliet Patterson is a poet whose work I have loved. But um, because I loved her work, we became friends. And she has been writing her first book of prose, Memoir. It just came out, and so I haven't gotten very far into it. But her father committed suicide um, in a kind of awful way. I mean, it's always awful, but um, had clearly planned it for a long time. She's an only child, so she and the mother were left behind just puzzling over why and how. And uh, Anyway, she's written a book called Sinkhole, Um And she's basically, I guess it's described as um, an elegant reckoning with the heartbreaking legacy of one American family because as she tried to learn about her father and suicide, um, she learned that there was a family, grandfathers on both sides of the family had committed suicide. Um, So she is, yeah, here's a description, one of the, critics says, Juliet Patterson writes, with a poet's precision and a poet's heart about that most devastating moment, the loss of a parent. Um, But the sinkhole is a really interesting metaphor. They go back to um, where he grew up, and the town actually was sinking, Mm -hmm. sinkholes. So it's a depressing topic, but she's handling it in a really fascinating way. I'll add one more book here because we're running out of time. Um, I'm always interested in reading about people who have, I don't know how you can say that they've become a major presence in our lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, almost all of them are controversial. G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century by Beverly Gage. Mm -hmm. It's a, as uh, they say, it's a crisply written prodigiously researched and frequently astonishing new biography. She explains how he built and kept his image as an old-school embodiment of law and order for most of his tenure. He simply did not understand the social movements that are going on for racial equality, and he equated those with people who were being a nuisance, Hmm. uh, were kind of interfering in the established order. Yeah. And so toward the end of his life, he really uh, turned off a lot of people. But this is, if you really want to learn about anyone, get a good biography, an insightful biographer who can look at pluses and minuses. And J. Edgar Hoover was such a formidable presence, and he kept a lot of scandal information on presidents so that they couldn't get rid of him. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the negative part. And his sexuality was something that began to be questioned toward the end. A puzzling man, an intriguing man, and a very interesting take on him. So uh, 
If you want to know a little bit more about uh, J. Edgar Hoover, then the biography by Beverly Gage is called G-Man. And that, along with the biography of Samuel Adams and of Donald Trump, boy, that'll give you plenty to do. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of reading. But that'll do it for now. We have not presumed to give you the best books of the year because we don't know what they are. (laughs) But you dig them out. You do some reading. And Rebecca, we and I'll be back next week with a real live author on Scribble. 